Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 335 of the Juice Box Podcast. Today's show is with Sarah. Sarah wrote me a long time ago. This one's been a long time in the making. Back in 2018, she was talking about feeling burned out and isolation and how she'd gotten through it. Sarah wanted to come on the show and share that story, and I thought that sounded terrific. So here she is. We're going to get right to it. But before we do, please let me remind you that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Please always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. And know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Touched by Type 1 and the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter. You can find out more about the meter, including whether or not you're eligible for a free meter, right? at contournextone.com and of course everything happening with Touch by Type 1 starts at touchedbytype1.org please give them a look alright here we go this is Sarah My name is Sarah, and I live in the metro Atlanta area, Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. And I've had type 1 diabetes for 22 years, since I was 12 years old, so I'm, I'm 34 now. I'm married. I don't have any children, um, but I work with children and families, and so I'm a helper. I'm in a helping profession. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's very cool. Listen, I want to say right off the bat, you were the first person, I've recorded about 300 of these now, who has respected the fact that this is a global podcast and said, (laughs) I live in the United States. And all the other people who are listening around the world are now like, finally, one person came on, didn't act like the United States was the only place in the world. I was very, I was so warned by that. I was like, that's nice. Well, thank you. Please. Um, Let's see. You... You, you didn't want to be on the podcast. Like, there's some people who reach out to me and they're like, I want to come on the podcast. They feel very passionately about wanting to say something. Some people reach out to say thank you or want to tell a story or something like that. But you reached out. I felt like you were just connecting and saying, you know, the podcast has been valuable to me and thank you. And I turned it back to you and I was like, you should come on. And I, so <laughs> sorry about that, first of all. No, no. And then, and you had written me a, 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 a fairly lengthy but not long and heartfelt note. And then I responded back to you, and you responded back to me again with more. And I was like, this woman's going to be fantastic on the podcast. She is not at a loss for what to say. And you're <laughs> so I was like, this is great. I guess I want to dig in a little bit because you have a long life with diabetes, and a lot's kind of happened to you throughout that time. All stuff that I think people are going to really resonate with. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about the time you were diagnosed, although I always wonder that at this point, 20 some years later, do you remember much of it at all? I remember that it was, it was in April. So uh, <laughs> my birthday was on the 14th. I got braces the 17th and 23rd. I was in the hospital. I remember that the, the previous fall, my mom had been, um, she was cautious for some reason. I, I don't remember what it was about what she was observing about me that made her cautious. Um, My grandmother, her mother had type two diabetes. And I remember that she had, my mother 
had gotten my granny's glucometer and checked my blood sugar um, and and there was nothing to be alarmed about. But then that whole school year, there was this awareness in her that something was off. Um, She would often ask me, I was losing weight and historically I had been an overweight child and um, I was in sixth grade that year. She was asking me, um, she could see what I was eating at the dinner table. So she'd asked me several times if I was going to the bathroom and throwing up after a meal. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't. Um, and I, I mean, I was excited to be a sinner for the first time in my memory. Um, so I didn't see anything wrong with it. Um, and she noticed one morning that we were in the bathroom before school. We were all kind of getting, you know, in and out of the bathroom together. And I had gone to the bathroom and she noticed that my urine smelled really strong. And so she called and made a doctor's appointment for that afternoon. And it, um, I think it was a Wednesday and I went, we went to the doctor and they came back in the room and said, you have to go straight to the hospital. And so I I had type one, um, I think I was in the hospital three days. Uh, they, I, I remember that my parents were anxious that this was going to be a really big problem because I had always hated shots. So this was 97. Started with, with um, insulin injections and syringes. They told my parents, they told me in the hospital, you have to learn how to do this by yourself. We won't let you leave the hospital until you know how to do this by yourself. What they meant was you have to learn to give the injections by yourself and you need to know the basics of how to calculate dosages by yourself. Right. And I, I did, you know, I, I, they said I took to it like, okay, this is what I have to do and that I did it. And I remember um, people being very affirming about that and just kind of this, oh, wow, you're so young and you're doing so well and you can do it, you know, you can do it all by yourself. Wow. The only incident in the hospital that was kind of infuriating was that I had a nurse that got frustrated at the slowness at which I was injecting. And he took it, he took the syringe out of my hand and just kind of stabbed my thigh and it hurt. Mm. And, um, and my mom said, what are you doing? And they told her she's got to learn how to do it by herself. And you did it exactly the way they told her not to do it. Well, you just need one bad apple, right? Like in any, in any walk of life, it only takes one person to come through having a bad day or, or, or with a job they shouldn't have or something like that. And, and, and you may have just been having a bad day, you know. And yeah, well, you were too. I don't know if you realize that. Sarah, see, isn't it nice of you to think of him? But you were having a bad day too. You were a young child who had just been diagnosed with diabetes in the hospital trying to learn how to like give herself injections. So, yeah. you know, I think as an adult, maybe he could have put his bad day aside and, and let you have yeah. yours, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's um, you know, it's interesting as I realize your mom is like the Sherlock Holmes of diabetes. She just like literally sniffed it out. She's like, pee's weird. We got to go. And uh, <laughs> But she was on you for a while, huh? She saw something 
she wasn't sure quite what it was, but she was paying attention, figuring out what was going on, which is beautiful. Did she have prior experience with diabetes that made her think, or was the weight loss just so drastic it was hard not to wonder? Or do you think she was just hoping to get your diet from you? What do you think was happening well, there? I think it's kind of a combination of variables in that it, she was familiar with type 2 through her mother. Mm-hmm. Um, her first cousin was diagnosed with type 1 at about 12 years old, and, and um, the cousin is older than my mother. So she remembers yeah. observing things and hearing stories about Sandra's diagnosis when she was growing up. Um, I think then... Uh, you know, my mother's a very um, determined, inquisitive person. Like, even now, it, you know, you say something to her about any number of topics, and she's going to go look it up on the internet. Like, she's just that kind of person. And then she's going to come back and probably tell you a lot more stuff that she, you don't care to know. Mm. Like, <laughs> it's a little overwhelming at times she's a little bit of a did you know she's like did you know that yeah (laughs) i read that sarah did you know (laughs) yes mom i see we got that good thing we got to that computer yeah (laughs) so i think she's always had that kind of um personality and you know there are instances where that really pays off Mm -hmm. like i have to know what this is yeah by that point my sister was born with some heart defects and had already had open heart surgery at six. And then um, Jane was later diagnosed with um, dyslexia and my mother's an educator. And so, I mean, there were already instances where I think she had learned how to be attentive and persistent in finding an answer. She's got other things going on in her life too. First of all, Let's take a minute for your mom. We should pour one out for her. She's got a kid with diabetes, a kid born with a heart defect. She was probably like, oh, my goodness. What if I just took these kids, you know, I don't know, to the mall, and then uh, I left them there, and then I'm, I'm back. I'll start over again. It's just very <laughs> – you. I mean, listen, it's tough. And I, I was just going to say, you said you don't have children, but um, there's this thing that happens when you're building a family, and I'm sure you've had thoughts about this on your own too, but – you picture what it's going to be like. And it's not just limited to building a family. It's your life and things and jobs and everything, love. And you think about this is what it's going to be. And then when it's not that, it's it really hits you hard sometimes. You know, yeah. like, And you look across the street and there's two kids running around in the yard and they don't seem to have a care in the world. And you think, how did I, you know, how did this happen to us? And right. uh, it, it's overwhelming. And, and a, a person who pushes through that then is to be lauded, I think. Like, you know, because like, there are plenty of people who run into roadblocks like that and, and run away. Your mom just doubled down. She's like, okay, we'll take care of it. And uh, and she did her best with it, which I think is all any of us can ask, to be perfectly honest. Um, 12 years ago, or excuse me, 20-some years ago, 12 years old, you're 90, you said it was like 97. Mm-hmm. Did anyone talk to you about technology back then? And if they did, what did that conversation sound like? Um... No, I I don't recall any conversation about technology. I think at the time, and granted, we were we were living um, in a town of about twenty thousand people, four hours south of Atlanta. Um, so there wasn't an endocrinologist in our town. 
probably the first couple years of my life with diabetes, I just saw my family practitioner. Okay. And um, so technology was, you know, graduating to insulin pens mm-hmm. and shorter needles. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? That was a big deal at some point, right? Yeah. Um, and it, I don't, even once we started going to an endocrinologist in Atlanta, I don't really remember a pump being part of the conversation. I don't remember there being the qualifier of you have to meet certain goals in order to earn this pump. Um, But at the same time, I don't remember it being named as a possibility either. I don't remember us asking questions about it too much. I knew they existed. Um, I knew that I thought that would be great if I could have one one day. But I, you know, I would... Just not, but it wasn't something like like nowadays where people are just like, I've had diabetes for six minutes. I need one of these and one of these, and you know, and they're running around trying to find out about it online. That whole world just didn't exist, I guess. No, that whole mentality of an an empowered patient is really new and still developing in a lot of ways. And so it was very much like these people have you know, been educated and, and they've earned the the status. They know they know more about this and they'll tell us what we need when we need to know it kind of thing. I think too for people with diabetes and parents, sometimes it's also overwhelming and you're just trying to make it through each day and, you know, have relatively good blood sugars that it's easy to to say, well, okay, I'd, if I don't have to think about something else, like advocating for myself, uh, that's great. <laughs> you said in, in your note that um, your mom had told you more recently that the doctor told her like not to nag or push too hard, and that she um, kind of she followed that advice. Um, I was wondering because you describe what I think of as a very like like. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I, I've just lost an incredibly common word. Sarah, give me a sec. <laughs> anyway, it's funny. In me explaining to you that I lost a common word, I realized the word I was looking for is common. So your mom, your mom used a very common parenting technique. She just told you, "You're a great, you know, princess is good. She's doing wonderful. Oh my God, you're young and you're doing this." She said all these uplifting things to you, but that doesn't necessarily make those things true. And if you're having feelings that don't match with what's being mirrored back to you by your parents. It's confusing because you even mentioned earlier, like she's telling you there's something wrong, you know, really asking you weird questions, probably for a 12 year, like, are you vomiting after you eat and think like, I'm sure at 12, you would never considered that. And you're probably like, wait, what? And so you're over here on one side of the dinner table thinking, Hey, it's finally, you know, it's finally my time. I'm eating the way I want. I'm, I'm, I'm getting the body I was hoping to have. She seems like there's something wrong. So you're in a happy place. She's in a concerned place. And now you switch roles after your diagnosis and you're in a concerned place and she's pretending we're all happy. And so I was wondering how that ends up impacting you over the years. Like, is it better to be starkly honest with children? Um, And that's my parenting style. I mean, it's not like I don't say, you know, horrible things to my kids. You know, if I, I don't look at them and think, oh, God, you know. 
you're not very good at math, that's going to be a problem. You know, I don't say stuff like to my daughter, like you should marry up or we're going to have a problem here with you. Like, like, and I don't think that, but if I did think that I'm saying I wouldn't be that honest, but I do, I am honest with them. Like if we sit and talk about diabetes or Arden's thyroid or something like that, she has a firm understanding of what's actually happening. I can still be um, supportive and positive without like blowing rainbows where they don't belong. So I was wondering how that all ended up working out for you. Uh, well, I don't think that she was all happy or that there were rainbows or that I was being overly affirmed in some way. I think her tendency and what, and actually what I felt like happened in a lot of ways was that she, she was checking in and uh, in an overwhelming way that to a teenager felt like nagging. Like, are you doing what you're supposed to do? And I, I was not always that engaged. I mean, I hated those logbooks. I was notorious for not keeping a logbook and then like scurrying around to kind of, you know, go back through the glucometer and plug in the last however many weeks worth of readings and kind of try to remember what I'd eaten and what I dosed and, you know, redo the math. I, th I think the the encouragement from the doctor was, you know, don't kind of step back and, and let her do it by herself. And yet that felt, I don't think I had the words. I don't, I don't think I had the ability to really process, to kind of step back and look at it. But I think in hindsight, it, it felt more isolating. Like, oh, re I really have to do this all by myself and nobody's going to help me. Yeah, I think that's why this conversation is really important, Sarah, because I pretty truly believe that a lot of the intentions that people have had in the past around diabetes had the exact opposite impact that they were hoping. And or they thought so firmly about like what's about these numbers. That's the important part. And they didn't think about you as a person. And I mean, from like the doctor's point of view, because really think of what we're talking about here. Hey, you have diabetes. Hey, jab yourself with this. By the way, you might get dizzy sometimes. By the way, you know, this might happen. These things are going to happen. This, all this stuff's going on. And here's a book to write your numbers down in. I, can you be like more confused in your mind and to believe that a 12 year old's going to be like, oh, a book to write my diabetes numbers down in. Thank you so much. Like, like who's going to care about that? That's why, well, I mean, one of the driving forces behind the podcast is me thinking, I don't want to do all this. I don't want to ask my daughter to do all this, not because I don't want to do something that will help her, but because it doesn't seem reasonable. Like, I, you expect me to do this for the rest of my life? I think the same way about carb counting. Like, when, yeah. I, when I see people with a scale, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you have to figure this out. Like, if the scale helps you figure it out, that's all right. But, you know, walk around with a scale for the rest of your life? Like, you, you need to find a livable way to live, you know, to manage diabetes. Not just... You didn't lose the other parts of who you were because you have type one, but they make it seem like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that the doctor's encouragement was, you know, to that this was mine. I had to learn how to live with it on my own terms. And she had to kind of remove herself from it in order to let me learn what I needed to learn. And if that meant failing, she had to learn to be okay with that. And I think there is some truth in that in parenting. Um, but at the same time, you know, a minor still a minor. Yeah. You weren't learning and, how to ride a bike, Sarah. <laughs> right. Were, it's not like 
Yeah. It's easy for us in, you know, 2019 to look back at, you know, 97, 2000 and say, what flawed systems and people these were. And yet, even the doctor, I go into him with my logbook. He's not seeing a graph like I can see on my phone. I don't know how you make a graph like that in your head looking at individual numbers. Right. But it's impossible. So there's been an evolution of, of data and systems and equipment that everybody's had to adapt to. Every, everybody was working with the best that they could. Yeah. And I'm, I bring it up. I, listen, I agree with you. I think, I think whether we're talking about politics or diabetes, our history is our history. We can't, we can't whitewash it. We have to be aware of what it is. And at the same time, we can't let it continue to repeat itself moving forward. Right. And there are plenty of people right now in 2019 who are, are going, living in 97, yeah, who are living back in your <laughs> 1997. So you're here to help everybody who's at home right now thinking, oh my God, that's how the doctor's talking to me. Am I being am I being managed like it was like it's 1997 while other people are doing these things that by the way I believe are easier once you grasp them. Oh and, yeah. You know what I mean? And and take up so much less of your time, give you so much more freedom and and a feeling of confidence and all the things that they were hoping to do. I'm just saying it's interesting how at some points people say these I don't know it's a way of thinking about things that baffles me. Um, situations are multifaceted. And yet the first thing that pops into someone's mind is what they believe the entirety of the answer is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, this kid has diabetes now. What should they do? And it's like somebody thought, oh, they should write their numbers down so they can track them. And then they stopped talking about it. Like that was the entirety of the answer. Um, it, it's, you know, it's funny if you think about, I don't know why politics are in my head so much today, but if you think about political arguments, if you ever have one with like a neighbor who's on the other side of you, if you really stop and listen, they're making as much sense as you are most of the time. And and you just have two different perspectives. So these are valid concerns about a central idea and you're hearing from other places. That's what makes the community around diabetes and even the podcast, I think, really valuable because I have a perspective, right? And it's mm -hmm. mine and it helps some people. But there are some people who listen to it and they're like, I don't like the guy from the podcast, but I tell you what I like, he had Sarah on and she told a story that resonated with me. And, and so those are more perspectives on a central issue. Doctors need that. Parents need that. People living with diabetes need that. You absolutely can't just go on your gut reaction all the time because you're just one person seeing one side. You know, there's a, there's a dark side of the moon. You need somebody standing over there looking at that part too. Mm-hmm. Ah. See, now we're getting to it. I'm feeling warmed up. You feeling good? We getting to it, Sarah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all, right, all right, I like it. So, yeah, I'm not attacking your mom, I, and, but I do appreciate how you defended her. You must love her. That's very nice. Some of this is growing, and, you know, there are some things that I, when I realize it for the first time, I feel angry about it, and then I have to step back and continue to process and say, well, no, I can't totally blame you know, this person, this is part of a system and we were all in it together. Right. It, it was that time. It was that place. It, 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 there's a lot of truth to that, to that statement. Do, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, 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 back then that was excellent care. And so, yeah. and so you were being given the most excellent care somebody could think to give you. Important though, to realize 20 some years into it, that you had effects of that moving forward and that you had to fight your way through it 
to get to where you are now. I'm interested in when you see nowadays, because I know you talked a lot in your writing about community and how valuable you found it to be and how you were trying to be a part of it too. But what does it feel like when you're 22 years through slogging through 1997 advice and you log on to some social media and see some some like person with their like six year old who's got like a five two A one C and they're like, Oh my god, look how easy this is. I'm killing it. Are you like, I wanna come find you and throw you in the water? Do you wanna find out what they learned so you can figure it out too? Like is there like what's that knee jerk reaction you have when you see someone else doing that? I'll admit like the the written forms of social media, Facebook, um, the beyond type one or whatever the name is, community. I I read it sometimes and there are helpful bits here and there. But the the thing that's been most helpful to me has been the podcast and just kind of listening to different stories and piecing things together over time because what works for one person may not work for me. I mean, especially, you know, the example of a of a parent managing their child's diabetes. I, I'm a lot bigger than their child is, you know. There are a lot of things about my life that are very different variables. And so to think that their success would translate too much, I don't know that that's that's the right way to think about it. Although, you know, hearing somebody say, well, we tried, you know, pre-bolusing or, or, you know, whatever this smaller piece of puzzle is that could work for anybody, that that helps a lot. Um, so I, I don't necessarily dive too deep on the on other forms of social media um, in terms of trying to apply what people have learned. And plus, just social media in that regard is exhausting so many times because you, you've got so many people who think they have the answers and are telling everybody else what to do. And they're not necessarily right or just quite honestly that the tone that they're writing in is annoying and frustrating and you're like, Ugh, I don't want to listen to this person. <laughs> it's not easy to communicate with other people. Yeah. It, I think people who do it well make it seem easy. And um, I, uh, I think that when, you, when you're not doing it well, it's, it's, it pushes people away. Um, yeah, and so you said something a moment ago. It just warmed my heart. Like if I had wings, I would have flown up off the ground. I was so excited. Uh, you said that you listen through the podcast and sometimes you pick bits and pieces from episodes and people's stories. So <clears throat> I had somebody ask me the other day, like they're like the pro tip series. Like we really like that because it was so focused. And I was like, yeah, it's great. I was like, but that's not how everybody's brain works. Everybody doesn't, everybody can't just plug in and have ideas downloaded into their head. Right. And these aren't, and these aren't ideas that are concrete all the time. It's not like two plus two is always four. And once you learn that rule, you can move on. You know, the idea of like setting up an extent, I always love when people ask me like, how do you set up an extended bolus? I'm like, well, that takes practice. Like if, and what that means is trial and error, you know, practice means trial and error. Um, and I might say it in a way that sparks your imagination, but doesn't get you there. And then someone else will tell a story and you'll be like, oh, that's what makes sense. And so when people ask me, where do I start listening to the podcast? I feel weird giving my real answer because my real answer is start at the beginning and listen through. And I realize as the longer the podcast is up, the more difficult that becomes. But the truth is, as you're listening to me 
learn what I'm doing and figure out different ways to talk about it and get better at asking people questions that kind of bring out answers that are valuable and get on, you know, uh, guests that are now listeners who understand like what the bigger picture is, it all builds on itself. And it sounds to me like you had that experience where like you got a little more, a little more, a little more. And then one day you were just like, Oh my gosh, I like filled my tank up the way I, I have, I've heard the things now I need to hear. Um, how did that change your actual management? Like how is your management, like your success or your failures or anything around using insulin? How has that progressed while you've been listening? So when I first started listening, it was just a matter of quite honestly, like checking more often and, you know, going from maybe four times a day to closer to 10, um, 15 and injecting more often because I'd gone, I had a tube pump for probably 10 or 12 years and I'd gone back to MDI for a little while. Um, I knew I wanted to get back to a pump, but, um, I wasn't there yet, and I just needed to start somewhere. And I think that's part of the value of the podcast, too, is that sometimes we get in our heads and we think, gosh, I've got to make all these changes, and tomorrow I'm going to be a better person with diabetes, and I'm, I'm going to be drastically different. And that, that's, that's part of how we set ourselves up for a fall, is that you can't, you can't change it overnight. It, you can't change yourself overnight. And so... With the podcast, you can hear one thing and say, okay, I'm going to work on this one thing. I'm going to work on checking more often, or I'm going to work on pre-bolusing, wherever you are. But it's also that it's not just the management that I think the podcast helps with. It's the way I understand my story with diabetes, myself with diabetes. It's the emotional components too. So I, I think the podcast is more holistic in terms of not just how do you manage blood sugar, but how do you live with diabetes in a way that I don't get from other places. And that's really what was transformational for me was the thinking, because it, it went from this idea that I'm never, I have to do this all by myself. I'm never going to get a handle on this. I'm always going to be this person that struggles. And, you know, is really not taking care of herself. And gradually, I realized I could do this. I, I could reset. I could drastically change and be this person that I never thought was attainable. And so I started listening probably April or May of 2018 by the end of July my A1C was down to like 7.5. I don't even know what it was before then. By September of 2018, I was on a Dexcom and an Omnipod. And my last A1C, I think, was, I didn't look it up this morning. I should have. It was a couple months ago, but I think it was like 5.6. And I am more comfortable talking about my diabetes. I never... I didn't tell anybody I worked with, I, and I work in a, a community of people. It's not just my colleagues, but like there's lots of people that we serve. I Nobody knew. I didn't tell anybody that I had diabetes until about a year ago. Since everyone has a blood glucose meter, they might as well have the best one. 
And in my opinion, the Contour Next One is that meter. If you go to ContourNextOne.com, you're going to see the meter that my daughter's been using for about a year and a half now. And it is far and away the most accurate and easy to use blood glucose meter that she's ever had. I mean that. When you get to ContourNextOne.com, there's a yellow button at the top where you can check to see if you can get a free meter. That's at least worth clicking on to see. But you're also going to find out about the Contour Next One app that goes with that meter that helps you make sense of your blood sugars. A lot of you might be using Dexcom or another CGM, but if you're not, these data points you're getting back from your meter, they can be made sense of. And the free app that's available for iPhone and Android, it will help you. There's really nothing to lose. Either you're gonna get a great meter that's going to supplement your care with spot on blood sugar checks, which by the way, always match Arden's Dexcom G6. It's fascinating how right on they are. Or you don't have a CGM and you need a great meter. And this is that one. ContourNextOne.com. After you're basking in the glow, right? You've got your meter and you're like, hmm, I'm feeling good about myself. Roll on over to touchedbytype1.org and check out what they're doing for people living with type 1 diabetes. You're going to take your good feeling about your new meter and add it to your good feeling the Touch by Type 1 will bring. Two good feelings are better than one. So that's contournextone.com, touchbytype1.org. And if you're not able to remember, you can always click on the links right there in the show notes of your podcast player or the ones that'll be found at juiceboxpodcast.com. Thank you for supporting the sponsors. I didn't tell anybody that I had diabetes until about a year ago. Did that make you feel like a, like you were lying to them? In or some not? ways. Yeah, I wasn't sure. But it was also that I, I just couldn't handle what I thought I would get from them. And this, I thought I would get judgment. I thought I would get people looking at my plate all the time. Um, people checking up on me all the time meaning well, but just in a way that I couldn't handle. And, um, and so all those things have changed to where, I mean, I have part of my job occasionally includes some public speaking and I have said publicly in some of those opportunities, I've talked about my diabetes and that never would have happened before. Good for you. And I mean, I, even my mom has said, I'm really surprised that you chose these devices that you have because for so long you didn't want anybody to know. And now you just wear them on your arm and it's so visible and like you're just out there. And I said, yeah, I, I don't. This is just it's different now. I, I see myself differently and I think I'm less part of my struggle with diabetes, I think, is is connected with my personality and this desire to be perfect. Um, even outside my diabetes, I have a hard time asking for help. I have this sometimes, you know, my, my worst, uh, I get myself into a hole cause I, I think I have to do something by myself. Um, and so I'm always learning in different ways, in different areas of my life, how untrue that is. It, it happens to so many people, right? Like the, what what is that saying? The enemy of 
good is great or something like that. Like the idea that if it can't be perfect, I don't do it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, and and on top of that, you have I can't I can't help I can't ask anybody for help. Um, you've come a really long way. I want you to know, Sarah, and, and genuinely, because you're from the South. I almost cried just now, and there's a connection there that you won't get for a second. But okay. I speak so quickly, and people from the South sometimes speak really measuredly. So there's nowhere for me to jump in because if I jump in with a small thought, I throw you off. So I've learned. <laughs> so I've learned when I'm interviewing people from the South, I just I hold all my questions till the end. And some people are probably like, "Yes, idiot, that's right, do that." And some people are like, "No, I like the back and forth of the podcast." So anyway, the point is, is that I was sort of forced to just let you talk and not interject when I I had thoughts that I was trying to um, that I, I wanted to bring up. The reason I do that, by the way, for people listening, is because I have like the memory of a flea. And so now all the things that I was thinking while Sarah was talking are gone out of my head. So you're never going to know any of them. But but the point is, is that sitting and listening to you, you came the closest of anybody ever to making me cry just now. So, um, and but just in happiness for you, um, you described an amazing transformation in an incredibly short amount of time. Um, it must have been mind-blowing to you that any of these changes happen in your life and did they come with great work or did they just for the lack of a better term did they just happen over time i think they really i i I won't say it's not without great work Mm -hmm. but it it feels more gradual over time and i think the greater work um i mean there was this effort in being more committed and taking the time just to do the daily stuff. Um, but I think once I had in my mind, this is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to reset. That was not so hard as, um, just in, in every facet of my life reminding myself that it's okay to, um, I think because I'm in a helping profession, it it is, there is this temptation sometimes to think that I have to wait until other people have gotten what they need and, or that I don't have time to take care of myself. And that's a lie. Like that, that is just the worst thing you could tell yourself. And so it, as different opportunities come up or thinking through things and not saying, I can't, I'm not, I'm not saying I can't do this because I have diabetes, I'm saying learning to tell myself and even tell other people, even if I don't mention diabetes, I, I can't do this because I deserve to be put first. And I refuse to backtrack. I refuse to go back to where I was. Good for you. It's incredibly important to be able to say no with confidence and not, and not apologize for it. Yeah. You don't have to apologize for saying, I can't do that. Or I don't want to. You can't take on the perceived bad feelings of another person, which, by the way, you might be wrong about to begin with. You, you know, yeah, like, very true. Right? You're now <laughs> you're now defending their feelings that you don't even know if they have or not, and in the process, making yourself feel terrible. Um, which, by the way, I assume if those people knew, they wouldn't want for you, and now you've made them and you feel bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's right. A, I think. I think. Mo- what I found is that people are much more um, 
they're much less judgmental than I give them credit for oftentimes. Yeah. You know how I put it to my children when they were growing up no one cares about you, but I meant it in a nice way. <laughs> like what I, what I meant was like, so I don't know if I've ever told this. It's a very simple story, but my son's, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And we're off in some town, you know, an hour away and he's playing baseball and it's over. And he's like, I'm hungry. And I was like, well, you're in luck because we're one town away from where Kevin Smith's comic book store is, a place that I had visited a lot when I was younger, and I knew of this diner right up the street. So we drove into the next town. I took him to this diner. Now it's this older diner, and it had some tables right in the middle. So if you can try to imagine a small space with tables all out on the perimeter of three walls and then one table in the middle of them. And that one table in the middle was what was open. And we came in and we sat down. And he was on one side of the table and I was on the other. And he couldn't focus on the menu. Or I was like, are you all right? Do you feel okay? Like, he seemed really wrong. And I was like, no. And I finally figured out he did not like that we were the center of attention in his mind. That everyone could see him. There was no wall to hide against. Do you know what I mean? Like, you couldn't put your back to something and be facing people to see what they were thinking of you. And that's the day I told him, Cole, these people are here eating. They don't care about you. I was like, and and if they're judging you for some reason, that's meaningless to you. First of all, you'll never see them again. Secondly, their opinion doesn't affect you. It doesn't impact you. They can't change your life. And the only power they have is if you let them have it right now. And the oddity, of course, is if you let them have that power, they'll never know. It's not like you're going to stand up and walk over to them and go, hey, I just want you to know your judgmental looks are hurting me. It's like you're not, <laughs> you know, like you're not, you're not going to tell them that. So this is all pretend. None of this mm-hmm. exists. Everything you feel isn't real right now. Now, that doesn't stop the fact that you're feeling it. And how do we get past that? But I think the first step for him was understanding that, like, nobody cares Nobody's here at this diner to look at you, you know, and, um, mm-hmm. and maybe that's hard sometimes for people who are people watchers to imagine that other people are not looking at you and they don't care. So it's very cool that you made such, I mean, like your mom makes a great point, like wearing an Omnipod on your arm. That's a, like, um, that's an I'm out situation right there. You, you know what I mean? Like that should be on pride day to be perfectly honest. Hey, that's a good yeah. idea. Um, if you're anybody's looking to support Pride people, where your oh, please, I can't. Uh, that's a great idea. We'll think of that next year on Pride Day. Anyway, um, and in in um, I don't want to overuse a term. Weight lifted. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, affecting other parts of your life, not if not touching diabetes yet. Has it like like rewired your personality in other ways? I would say probably so, although I may be less able to articulate it. Um, maybe I'm not fully aware, haven't totally recognized everything yet. Mm-hmm. I think it, it has given me a, a different... I always knew diabetes had this capacity to help me be more sympathetic or empathetic to the people that I work with, even if they didn't live with diabetes. But... Um, I think that's that's probably grown it just cut as I change in my thinking about some things. I feel like I've changed a lot in how I think about healing and cure. I think there's a difference, and i I think our culture largely wants cures, whether or not we realize it. I think a lot of 
what we say when we want a cure for something is that we want it to go away and we want it to be like it never existed, like it never happened. And I think cures, especially for diseases, are attainable, but the reality is that a cure in the in the sense that I'm thinking about it, and and we also want quick fixes in American culture. You know, we want something right now. Um, but a cure really only works for those people where it's preventing the disease. Because if a cure comes about for diabetes, and I, you know something's able to make my pancreas start working and producing insulin again, it's not going to change the fact that I once had diabetes and that's part of my story and that experience changed who I was and I learned something from it. And I don't know that I want that story to go away. Um, so, yeah. So I, I would say I've experienced healing and even something pretty miraculous with, you know, all of all the things that have happened over the last year to 18 months um, with Dexcom and Omnipod and those tools that are available to us now. Um, and if I'm sure there are ways in which my life with diabetes will improve in ways I can't yet imagine. But if it doesn't, this is enough. Like the healing I've experienced in the last year is enough. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's so nice. And it makes my joke seem like ill time now because I was going to say. <laughs> Say whatever you want. I was gonna say, like, you know, anybody who's seen the Avengers movies, what what Sarah's talking about is like she's you know, it's a snap. Like she's talking about like people are looking for Thanos to like show up and be like, No more diabetes. It's over, you know. And um if you didn't see those movies, just nod along with me, Sarah, and I'll keep going. I'll I'll pull it all together for you right now, don't worry. Uh but but yeah, you you just said something that was incredibly impactful, which is this process is who I am. If you take this all away, then I'm a shell, right? Like you can't take these these experiences away. And it's important to embrace them as much as you possibly can too. Because, you know, I said it in, you know, simpler terms, but having diabetes makes you more aware of your health. You know, some of the, the healthiest people I know have type 1 diabetes because they're so incredibly aware of their bodies. And, you know, and some of the most thoughtful people I know have been through struggles, um, not just diabetes, but other things that gives you perspective. It's all perspective. Your, your goal at the end of life should be to have gathered up as much perspective as you possibly can get, because otherwise, I mean, what are you like, you know, like you're this just like, you know, one dimensional thinking thing that, you know, is wandering around saying the stuff your parents told you when you were 15. Like, that's not life. You have to you have to run forward and see what it is you can find out about other people and the world and culture and, and heartache and pain, like all that has to be a, a part of your tapestry, I guess, you, you know, like you, you want to you know, you want to get as far as you can get taking in as much as you can take in. And then that's that. Cause we're all going to go at the end. I mean, and, and if you're looking to just like put blinders on and pretend nothing else exists, I don't think that's particularly healthy. Um, you, you just, it's, it's so funny. Like you're describing 
a metamorphosis for finding a podcast, which is throwing me a little bit, if I'm being honest. <laughs> like, you know, if, if you stop... Your work a miracle, Scott. Well, Jesus, Sarah, <laughs> it took me 47 minutes to get you to say it. I mean, next time, could you get to it quicker, please? I I saved your... No, I'm just joking. What I'm talking about here is that, in, in sincerity, is I wrote a blog for a really long time. And when I saw that blogging was sort of going away and people weren't really thrilled about, you know, reading as much as they had been. I was concerned because I used to think, hey, this blog, it helps people. Like I get a note once in a while, you know, hey, thanks for sharing your blah, 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 it helped me. But they were very like still surfacey notes like that. I'm sure it was important in their life, but it was, you know, it was like, oh, I didn't know about this thing for the, you know, for my pump or something like that. Or I appreciate knowing about the, you know, the insulin pricing thing. And as I saw it going away, I panicked. I went to my wife and I was like, this thing that I know is helping people, I think nobody's going to read anymore. I'm like, I think BuzzFeed's going like, to literally kill my ability to help people with diabetes. And then of all the weird, ironic stuff, something Katie Couric said to me, because I got to be on her show, because I wrote a book about parenting, because I wrote a, an inset for a person's diabetes book the year before, because all those things happen, and I got to go do an interview, and when that interview was over, all she did was grab me and say, hey, you're very good at this. And I didn't know what she was talking about. I genuinely had no idea what she was saying. I was walking off stage. I'm a regular person from a suburb who's, you know, at CBS studios recording a television show thinking like, how did this happen? You, you, you know? And I asked her, I don't know what you're saying. Like, what am I good at? And she just said talking. She said, not everybody's good at talking. You're good at it. Thanks for coming. And I walked away. And in the moment when I thought my blog was going to die because people just want to click through pictures to see if like Leo DiCaprio got fat, um, you know, and nobody wants to read anymore. I thought, Maybe I could talk to people. That woman said to me I was good at it. You know, like Katie Couric said, hey, you're good at this. And then I took about a week wandering around my house thinking about what that would look like. And I thought, huh, I listened to a couple of podcasts that I like. I should try that. And then four years later, you're telling me all of this. I hope you understand has been very transformative for me, too. And it's incredibly strange. Um, it's incredibly strange for me because I didn't, because four years ago, five years ago, I didn't say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my brilliance to the podcasting medium and find Sarah and save her. You, you know, like, like I didn't have any lofty goals, I guess. Um, it's really cool to hear how this is affecting you. I'm, I'm humbled by it, even though, because I was trying to sound fun and funny just now, I seem the opposite of humil, uh, humble, but, uh, but trust me, I am. Sarah, are you okay? Cause I just talked so quickly and no, sometimes, I'm sometimes I worry I'm about, good. I sometimes anybody below like Virginia, I start to worry about a little bit. Um, <laughs> I have a lovely email somewhere for a gentleman from a gentleman in Texas. And he said it took him months of listening to the show at a slower speed. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be able to catch up with how quickly I speak. And he said, and he was so proud of himself. He's like, I have it now. I can listen at normal speed. <laughs> no, the, I, I haven't experienced that problem in listening to you, you know, today or, or other days. Thank you. So. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe it's a Texas thing. Let's put it on them. By the way, 
it's possible by the time anybody hears this, I will uh, be booked to speak in Houston. Um, I've been trying to get to Texas. I've never been there. So um, I'm pretty excited about that. But but Sarah, like, I just I, – I realize you sent me the email to say thank you. And a lot of what you just said was similar. And I'm just trying to thank you back. I'm just trying to be, you know, entertaining about it. But I'm trying to thank you back because you don't know – as much as you, as much as I don't know your life and how you feel, I can listen to you describe it. I can try to like take it in, but I don't really understand. You know, I never could. I don't have diabetes. In that same way, I can never truly get across to you how flabbergasted I am that the things you just said you were saying to me, like that doesn't make any sense to me. So um, it's just very nice. I don't know another way to say it. I'm, I'm completely touched by it and so happy for you that I don't know. I could never tell you how happy I am for you. If people follow me on social media, when you guys put something nice up, I just throw a blue heart on it for diabetes. Because if I start responding to you, I'm going to be all like, oh my God, this is amazing. You did so well. Like I get like, I, you know, like, I get like uh, too much, you know? And so I just, I throw those blue hearts on one because you guys are nice enough to share the show and these things are happening more frequently and I am genuinely managing all this by myself and I'm starting to run out of time. But, um, but because I know I would just start to just be like, wow, how did you get your A1C that low? And then like the podcast, I'm like, that can't be right. Like, like that's because I know me, you know what I mean? And, um, it's hard for me to imagine. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit. You've, you've referenced a number of times, like you have a, a clear, like caregivers mentality. Um, but not that you can't and not have children, but you don't have children. Do you think that you, I, this is so personal, but you've said so many personal things, Sarah, screw it. I'm just going to ask you, do, did you want children, but you can't have them? I, or I'm not aware if, if that's the case, <laughs> we'll, we'll put it that way. Um, I, I never felt like, um, I just never felt like I had to have children. Like there were things in my life that I felt like I could not live without doing. And and my work is one of those things, being married, um, to my husband is one of those things. Giving birth to a child is not one of those things. And there was always this back of my mind thing in the back of my mind, especially when I was not the the when I didn't take care of my, myself in the way that I am now that like I knew like I can't even take care of me how am I going to take care of another person and I I just I wasn't sure that I could ever get there now I mean today I know that if I needed if I were to get pregnant I could manage my diabetes through pregnancy and everything would be okay but I didn't always know that about myself but in this sense the, the decision we've made is really more out of a sense of calling. Um, I My work, so I, I work in a church. Mm-hmm. I'm a children's minister. And uh, I really feel called to help families be their best and to pa- help parents be their best with their children. I don't feel called to give birth to my own. Um, and my husband has his own variation on that that calling, but we've reached this decision together, you know, that he doesn't feel called to, um, to have biological children. There may come a day when we, um, 
um, choose to foster. That won't be right now, but I think if if um, if we parent, we would be foster. If we parented with children in the home, we would be foster parents. And I, I think I see what I do as a type of parenting that we really all, you know, I'm not taking on as much of the responsibility as a as a birth parent does as someone who has children in the home. But I, I am a influential adult in these children's lives, and that matters, and I take that seriously. Such an incredibly responsible thought. Do you, you know what I mean? Like because it's so easy to be pressured by other people into feeling like I have to, you know, I'm supposed to grow up and meet somebody and get married and make a baby. Like that feeling that that that's what people expect of you. And it's interesting because. You are you were in so many other ways in your life pressured by what other people thought, but not in this one, which is a bit which is a big one. Um, and that's oh, I still want I still struggle sometimes with like how how will somebody see me or think that like will the parents I work with take me seriously and think that I have something meaningful to contribute to them since I don't have children of my own. Well, I'll say this to you, Sarah. I don't. There, have so there is some self doubt there. <laughs> well, I don't have type one diabetes. Do I have something meaningful to contribute to it? Yeah, yeah. yeah you do too. You know. So um, again, that's a different perspective. I tell people all the time here, like it's, I can be dispassionate about it because I don't have it. Because all the things that you've described today don't affect me because I don't have diabetes. So I get to think about the, the more I can think about the nuts and bolts idea without being clouded by you know, things as serious as worrying about making my blood sugar low or if somebody will see me inject in public. I was able to at some point look at my daughter and say, I think it makes most sense for her psychological well-being if we give her insulin wherever we are and don't run to a bathroom and hide or feel like hiding is what's necessary. Now, she might not have felt like that at the time, but I did and I got to decide. And so, you know, like sometimes you need someone who can step back from things and say, look, I know how you're feeling, but this is the way to go. And I think you probably can do that for people too. I mean, honestly, not being pressured into having a baby is like the most responsible thing I've ever heard in my life. If you don't want to be a parent, you shouldn't be. Do you know how many people are walking around their parents who don't want to be parents? It's horrifying, yeah. you, you know? So. That's really beautiful. Like it's a, such a kindness, like to a baby, to you, to your husband, like to you know the things you're going to do together. I'm now excited about the things you're going to do together. I have a, a picture in my head of, you know, you're feeling better and your blood sugars are are where you want them, and you're moving in this new direction. I feel like you're going to like go forward like a million miles an hour and just do things you never expected. Yeah, we're excited. I bet you are. How did you not tell me you were a youth minister before we started? I'm sure there was like 10 things I said I wouldn't have said if you told me that. No, you're totally fine. Was I? Did I not? I didn't. No, I I think sometimes, um, sometimes we don't tell because you're more yourself when we don't tell you. (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I like that. It's so funny. I run the podcast the same way. People are like, do you want to know about it? I'm like, nah, not really. Let's just go. <laughs> because if I know something, then I'll start ta- like, then I'm just reading your email. Do you know what I mean? Like, then we don't need the podcast. Yeah. So, and th- then it's a blog, which by the way, people won't read. So blah, 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 blah. And you know, b- this is what we need to do. Um, so Sarah, you've helped a lot of people today. You don't realize that. And it wasn't really today because this will come out like you know four months from now. And you'll, <laughs> you'll be like, I don't even remember doing this anymore. Um, 
but it, it's just incredibly kind of you because you, this was not your intention and, um, and you did it anyway. And then you were just insanely honest. So, um, this is really nice. I, I have had a couple of interviews where we've stopped the recording and then people say something and I think, why did you not say that while we were recording the show? <laughs> like that, you're like, that was the truth right there. How did you not get to the truth while we were recording? But I think you let the truth out pretty well. Um, oh, thank you. No, I, I thank you very much. Um, I have to tell you, as a person who I believe is a caregiver at heart too, it's not easy all the time. And that feeling that you know other people come before you is is lovely and it's kind, but it's dangerous for you, you know, sometimes. So, um, you absolutely just have to go with any number of those silly thoughts, but you know, the air masks fall out of the airplane. You got to put yours on first is, is sort of the one that, that always rings in people's heads. You can't take care of other people if, if, if you're in need as well. So, um, I love that you're taking great care of yourself. I thrilled that it came from this podcast. Like that's just insane. Um, I'm just really, I don't know. This is like the nicest. I'm going to have the greatest day now. Yeah. I'm so happy. I'll probably get hit by a car later. And so, um, I'm sorry. That's an inappropriate, uh, bit of (laughs) I want to just ask you if there's anything that you pressingly wanted to say that we didn't get to. Really don't think so. Good. That's amazing. In that case, Sarah, I'm going to say goodbye and then I'm going to stop the recording and say goodbye to you like a person. And okay. um, there, I imagine you'll study something incredibly impactful that will change the world while we're not recording. So hold I'll on one second. <laughs> yeah, actually, if you have an impactful thought, just keep it yourself because it'll just make me upset. Okay. So. Okay. <laughs> Huge thanks to Sarah for coming on the show and sharing her story. And thank you to touchedbytype1.org and the Contour Next One blood glucose meter. A blood glucose meter where you can touch the, the blood with the test strip and it doesn't get it quite right. And that doesn't waste the strip. You can go back and do it again. Hmm. You like that idea, right? Plus the little form factor fits in anywhere you want to keep it. Your pocket, your bag. It's big enough to hold on to, small enough not to be in your way. Let me take a moment to thank you for continuing to listen during the COVID-19 crisis. Very appreciative. I hear stories from other podcasts, and it's not going quite so well for them. And I really appreciate that you guys are sticking with the show and listening at the same pace. It's uh, it's heartwarming, actually. I'm glad to be there. I get a lot of nice notes from people who are like, this podcast is like the constant for me while I'm you know, stuck in my house or not working. And uh, I'm glad that it can be that for some of you. It's really wonderful. That's pretty much it. I mean, unless you want to leave a glowing review on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, I mean, I'm not going to say no to that. You guys got anything else? This is not much of a two-way street on conversation, so I feel like I can hear you saying, no, Scott, we're done. Thanks. You want to know what the next couple of episodes are going to be? I don't do that very often. Should I? I think there's an After Dark coming up that you're really going to enjoy. I'll say that much. and. Dr. Nadelman's going to be back soon to give a coronavirus update, and we're going to talk about integration back into life. That should be really interesting, and there's a lot of other good stuff. I'm going to hit this psychological bend a little more around the way diabetes makes you feel in the next couple of episodes. I like this. Make a little theme week. Um, But that would be weird if I made a theme week. That does not seem like something I would do. I wish you would just forget I even said that. 
Thanks so much for listening. Hey guys, there's new merch at juiceboxpodcast.com. If you want to check it out, there's these neck gaiters. I just got one. I've been wearing it to the grocery store. It's very cool. And a couple of new t-shirts. And um, you know what I'm saying. Otherwise, share the show with a friend. Oh, and don't forget, diabetesprotip.com is available now. It's completely free. It just culls together all the Diabetes Pro Tip episodes from the podcast into one place. So I was hearing from people like, I'm trying to share the pro tips, but this person doesn't understand podcasts. How do I give it to them? Diabetesprotip.com. Have a good day. I'll see you soon.